Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Ford now prepping for a strike, getting white-collar workers ready for the assembly line. New York may become the next state to ban punishment for not attending captive audience meetings. And today on the show, what's going on with child labor in the United States? And we check in with the Lakeland Faculty Association. Welcome to the Monday, August 21st edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with a newcomer. His name is Reed Mackey, and Reed is Director of Child Labor Advocacy on behalf of the Child Labor Coalition. They're part of the National Consumers League. In his position, he coordinates the activities of the coalition, which, by the way, has 35 organizational members striving to minimize exploitive child labor domestically and internationally, also working to protect the health, safety, and well-being of child workers in the United States and abroad. He's got a lot of experience in this field. Prior to joining the coalition going back to 2008, Reed worked for 12 years at the Association of Farm Worker Opportunity Programs, where he served as the communications director and also led the Children in the Fields campaign. Its goal, to end the legal loopholes in U.S. child labor law that permit child agricultural laborers to work longer hours, to work at younger ages, and to perform hazardous work at younger ages than children working in other industries. Today, he helps head national efforts to address the U.S.'s growing domestic child labor program as children are increasingly found conducting hazardous work in meatpacking facilities and other factories. In his earlier career, Reed worked for both daily and weekly newspapers as a reporter. We're going to talk about this alarming rise in child labor, and it started even before the pandemic. It seems like the pandemic even accelerated it. The uh, U.S. Labor Department is looking into this. In some cases, they've seen a jump of like 69 percent. In some communities, it's over 300 percent. Meatpacking, a lot of factories, lumber. So what's being done about this? What's happening on the state level? What's happening on the federal level? We'll talk about all of that with Reed Mackey as our first guest on the show. Our second guest on the show is Lynn Gabriel. Lynn is a professor of psychology at Lakeland Community College. She's spokesperson for the Lakeland Faculty Association. Website is lfa.ohea.us. A little background on Lynn. She is currently a professor of psychology at Lakeland, specializing in lifespan development. And this fall marks her 20th year at the college with previous experience at Tri-C. She's also worn many hats for the Lakeland Faculty Association, including her current role as spokesperson and as secretary of the executive committee. And she also served as vice president of the association and was president during the previous contract negotiations going back uh, three years. We'll talk about collective bargaining, what they're negotiating now, why it's important 
for any faculty union to maintain the right to bargain and also federal mediation. We'll get into all of that with Lynn Gabriel from the Lakeland Faculty Association. And now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management, offering fixed income real estate and equity investment options to clients around the country. Doing this since 1928. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. The Ford Motor Company is preparing white-collar workers to do blue-collar jobs just in case of a UAW strike. This according to internal company materials reviewed by the Detroit Free Press. Now, over the past month, Ford has held meetings with salaried workers, including engineers, to explain that the company wants to protect the flow of parts to car dealers in support of customers. Now, that means Ford is planning to take actions that include sending white-collar workers into parts warehouses to run forklifts. That should be interesting. If operations are disrupted and factory production is shut down, the company is planning to deploy salaried workers in 20 sites in 15 states. Here's the rundown of the states. California, Oregon, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Kansas, Michigan, New Jersey, North Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, and Wisconsin. A Ford manager is quoted as saying, we are working hard to reach a new deal. But like we do for any scenario where customer service could be interrupted, we need a plan for the possibility of a UAW strike. And this week, the union is taking a strike vote. Our customers and dealers are counting on us to ship parts so we can keep Ford vehicles on the road. Speaking of the UAW, some 4,800 fellows at the National Institutes of Health, we're talking researchers and postdocs, wide range of scientific fields they work in, they will soon vote on whether to unionize with the UAW. Now, if the NIH Fellows United Union wins, the workers would join tens of thousands of other postdoctoral workers nationwide almost all at colleges and universities. Now, they've unionized in recent years with the UAW, with the Teachers, Office of Professional Employees, the News Guild, the Teamsters, and other unions. NIH Fellows United unveiled its organizing drive at the beginning of June, and, of course, the bosses initially objected to their right to unionize. No shock there. However, they finally caved. They dropped all objections on August 14th, thus clearing the way for a vote at an unspecified date. News reports said NIH Fellows United had turned in 3,000 signed union recognition election cards to the Federal Labor Relations Authority. This is the small agency that runs labor management relations for the federal workforce. Marjorie Levenstein is an organizer, and she said, I am excited the NIH has chosen to do the right thing. Key issues in the organizing drive, at least according to statements from individual fellows posted on the union website, include pay, recognition, as well as transparency. New York State may soon become the latest and most likely the largest state in the country to ban bosses from disciplining workers who skip anti-union captive audience meetings. They're on a roll right now in these bans. The uh, bill, which easily cleared both houses of the legislature, is headed for the desk of Governor Kathy Hochul, who has been pretty friendly to workers and unions over the years. 
The New York bill, like similar laws in Connecticut, Oregon, Maine, and Minnesota, bans the discipline, thus freeing workers to skip the meetings which often feature union busters. Passage of the law in New York is important because New York State, every year is usually the first or second in the country in union density, with New York City leading the way. Now, that attitude can make union organizing more palatable to non-union workers. And then, of course, you got captive audience meetings, which counter it. The state AFL-CIO listed the measure as a notable legislative win in the 2022-2023 session. Yeah, I'd say so. By the way, the uh, anti-captive audience law is also a top cause of Stu Applebaum. Stu is president of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. And he said this especially after workers at the REI store in Manhattan campaigning to unionize with his union were subjected to a real bitter campaign, anti-union campaign. The best part about that, they beat it. They won. This is what Stu said. Employers have become much more aggressive in using captive audience meetings to force workers into hearing the employer's one-sided propaganda on unionization and other issues. These meetings often leave workers feeling pressured and intimidated, and it's time the law catches up to the reality of the moment by allowing workers to refuse to attend these meetings without fear of retaliation. You talk to anybody that's gone into these meetings because they'll take a vote, a straw poll, on whether or not they're going to unionize, and it's usually overwhelming union. But when they go to those meetings... It's the other way around, the other way around. So hats off to uh, New York State. Hopefully they'll be joining Connecticut, Oregon, Maine, and Minnesota, banning the discipline, not the meeting, banning the discipline, thus freeing workers to skip the meetings. Love that. All right, quick break. When we come back, all about child labor with the Child Labor Coalition. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, Canada and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge 
to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. America's workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Now, back to America's workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or X, whatever you want to name that company today. That would be awfpodcast.com, awfpodcast.com podcast.com by the way this next segment brought to you in part by the ohio federation of teachers you can find more at oh.aft.org let's go to washington dc the nation's capital and joining us on line number one today is reed Mackey. reed is director of child labor advocacy and we're going to talk about the surge in child labor and child labor violations in Reed's role as director of the Child Labor Advocacy, which is part of the National Consumers League, he coordinates the activities of the Child Labor Coalition, which, by the way, has 35 organizational members and strives to minimize exploitive child labor domestically as internationally. And we're seeing a lot of states lowering the age for kids to work. In some cases, these kids are serving alcohol. We've been on this issue here at America's Workforce, so it's only appropriate that we uh, go to Reed Mackey and find out what's going on a national scale here. Reed, thanks for joining us today. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this, uh, this program, this organization, and the program that you're working on to uh, kind of get some I guess, outreach here and educate the public on what's going on, because it seems to be the numbers speak for themselves since, what is it, 2015? And this is according to the Economic Policy Institute. The uh, Labor Department data shows an almost 300 percent increase in child labor violations. Again, that's in the past eight years. So, Reed, can you tell me what's going on in America today? How is this happening? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, so, um Part of it may be that the Biden administration, DOL, is doing a better job of enforcing child labor laws. So, you know, it's hard to say, like, exactly how much it's increased. We do we do think the child labor has increased. But, um, you know, certainly the, the Department of Labor under, under the Biden administration has done better. Um, they're being more aggressive. But what, what's really, I think, alarming is that we're seeing kids into, in jobs that are very dangerous. Uh, we're seeing kids in meatpacking plants. We're seeing them in uh, Hyundai auto supply uh, parts factories in Alabama. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a New York Times expose, found kids in 20 states doing all kinds of dangerous things like roofing, you know, some construction, working in, in you know, in hotels, changing sheets, you know, jobs that you don't really want, te- you know, young teens to be doing. So, lo- you know, lots of disturbing things happening right now. And I'm reading here from the uh, DOL, Department of Labor, 24 children actually died from work-related injuries. This was two years ago in 2021. Around half of deadly work accidents happen on farms. No surprise there. And this is according to a report from the Government Accounting Office covering child deaths from 2003 to 2016. And, and farming, too, it's a whole different 
animal there because you got a lot of families that put their kids to work right away and they're not part of the uh, the the labor department's rules and regulations when it comes to minimum wages and all that but these other industry slaughterhouses i'm reading and uh, um construction accidents i read a story not too long ago this is a poultry plant in mississippi where a 16 year old died after becoming trapped in an equipment in a conveyor belt he was trapped in his equipment another one was uh, this was in Florence, Wisconsin? Sixteen-year-old Michael Schulz died after sustaining injuries at the Hardwoods Logging Company. I mean, how? How? First of all, <laughs> I have to wonder, and probably you do. Is are you a parent, Reed? Let me ask you that I, first. Are I, you am, a I am not a parent. I, okay. I have a lot of friends who are parents, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's very concerning. And I actually, um, I was recently talking with a parent who's whose child, whose teen, teenager, was severely injured injured in a factory accident, you know, operating uh, machinery he should not have been operating. It's, you know, it's very worrisome what's happening out there. And, you know, you mentioned those two 16-year-old olds who, um, you know, died this summer. There was a, a third one in a landfill accident that died, I think that was in Missouri, um, but to lose like three 16-year-olds in just a month, basically, you know, four or five weeks time, it's it's very alarming. And yeah, and it, it really goes to show, uh, I think it, it points out how important uh, enforcing our child, child labor laws are and making sure that kids are not ending up in jobs that they're not supposed to do. Yeah. You know, at first when this came to light, I thought it was part of uh, the pandemic. And during the pandemic, as you know, it changed everything, just all the dynamics. And there's a lot of people in low wage frontline jobs that are just not doing it anymore. I mean, if you go to fast food chains today, you see elderly people working because they can't find young people or they can't find even middle aged people because they don't want to do that anymore. I, I get that. So as a result, these states have lowered the the age to work. I see that. But apparently, when you take a look at the data, it goes well beyond that. I mean, I mentioned the f- figures from 2015. Um, but isn't there an organization? We talked about this on the show maybe about two months ago. Isn't there an organization down in Florida that is kind of driving the bus on this whole thing where they're pushing the states? Maybe you could speak to that. They're pushing the states to lower the age so they can get more workers in their establishments. Isn't that what's happening right now? Yeah, there was some reporting in the Washington Post um, about this, and, and uh, yeah, essentially they found that this um, kind of shadowy group called the Foundation for Government Accountability, a, a think tank based in Florida that has a pretty sizable lobbying arm, was actually writing some of the bills to weaken child labor protections. And I've I've heard speculation that this is part of a concerted effort to to weaken um, labor protections and you know worker rights. You know, kind of at at the um, you know the um, the more foundational parts of our economy, and it, it's really it's <laughs> if that's the case, it's just really shocking and, and awful because you know these the group is funded by a right wing billionaire, um, and um, the idea that like some a privileged member of our society is is going after the most vulnerable workers, you know, including including t- you know trying to exploit teenage workers. Uh, that's just shocking and, and, and unacceptable. Are you finding where they're lowering the age to be in mainly southern states, more conservative legislators? I, I noticed uh, Arkansas was on the list here where the governor there, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, signing a law bill that did away with their uh, 
work permit process. Is that pretty much the case of what's going on to your knowledge? Yeah. So, you know, so um, so the governor says that they're not weakening, um, you know, they're not really making substantive changes. She claims they're just getting rid of this work permit process. But but the problem with that is that work permits provide uh, nice checks on, on teen employment. You know, a, a parent and a teenage worker go into a state office and they have their the, the teen's age verified. And the official looks at, you know, what the job is that the kid's going to be doing, and they can say, well, that that's not allowed. You know, that's dangerous. So it's a very valuable double check. So I think that the governor was being a bit disingenuous when she was saying um, it was removing, you know, she claimed it was just removing, uh, you know, uh, um, bureaucracy and, and outdated um, processes. But um, we really think that those are very valuable checks and that um, because of the removal of of that work permit process, the kids will be um, end up in jobs that they don't belong in, and you know some of those jobs will be quite dangerous. Reed, I want to go back to the parenting or lack thereof here and uh, meatpacking. You brought up meatpacking, and the Department of Labor did an investigation. They found children as young as twelve working the graveyard shift in thirteen meatpacking facilities in eight states. Now. <laughs> How does that happen? I mean, are the parents saying, oh, we need the money? I, I don't know. Have you found anything about that? That really bothers me as a parent. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so um, we do think that a lot of those kids are unaccompanied minors, you know, which means they came into the U.S. across the border by themselves or with, like, you know, a distant relative or a family friend but not with a close parent, you know, like a close family member. So they're really vulnerable and, you know, nobody's looking after them. The kids, you know, typically don't speak English. They, um, they're desperate for money because, you know, they're, the reason they left Central America or Mexico is, is to help family back there that's, you know, that are destitute um, and, you know, troubled by violence as well. So, so, yeah, it's just a horrible situation. And the kids, you know, they're grabbing these jobs, um, which are legal, you know, completely illegal, because some of these kids are as young as 13. And uh, you mentioned they work in the graveyard shift. And, so, you know, some of the kids got, uh, at least one of the kids had chemical burns from the caustic chemicals they were using. The kids were staying up all night cleaning, cleaning, you know, the basically, you know, the rendering parts of the meatpacking plant, cleaning, you know, razor-sharp saws, um, using pressure washers, which are dangerous. And... Um, you know, they were really kind of risking their health, and I don't think they have any idea like how bad these jobs are when they, when they enter that factory for the first time. You know, they're they're from often rural areas of of Central America. They may have done some farm work, um, you know, which is hard, but it's not it's not as like horrific as as some of the meatpacking conditions can be. So, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's very frightening. Yeah, what we're talking about here is some, a group of people that probably came to America for quote a better life. And this is where they ended up. I have to wonder here. You mentioned, I mean, they, they definitely, these companies here pushed the envelope and went over the line. Have they gotten into trouble? Were, were, were they, you know, called out on this? Were, were there any fines involved? Does, the, uh, does your organization, the Child Labor Coalition, follow that up? Yeah, so it's that's a very interesting question. And um, so the, what happened is the companies a lot of them use staffing agencies. So when they hired the cleaning crews, they used a, a staffing company called PSSI. 
and that company, you know, hires the 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 teens, and uh, you know they're responsible for checking the ID. So, in a way, the co- the company owners, the the plant owners, are are kind of hiding behind these staffing agencies. They're benefiting from the child labor, um, but they're not. They were not fined um, in the you know by DOL in earlier this year. It was the it was the the cleaning company PSSI. So when when uh, DOL did announce the results of that of that investigation, they said that moving forward, they would fine the people who benefit from the employment of the teens, and um, that's something we're looking forward to. We would really like to see the factory owners. You know, in this case, it was you know Tyson and JBS, these giant giant meat processing firms. We'd like to see them held responsible for you know any any um, illegal child labor in their factories. And the problem is, and we know this, it doesn't matter who you are, the fines when it comes to uh, violations at work where it's an unsafe workplace, they're usually a drop in the bucket. That That's another issue, and that OSHA has uh, has to increase that, and obviously Congress would have a role in that, but there's a lot of people in Congress that don't like OSHA. So that's an issue as, uh, as well. Reed Mackey joining us on our live line today. Reed is director of Child Labor Advocacy, Child Labor Advocacy at the Child Labor Coalition. Here's a website you want to go to, stopchildlabor.org. Real simple, stopchildlabor.org. We'll continue with the conversation right after this. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Buildings, bridges, skyscrapers, and more. Structures that are the face of our cities and towns were built by members of the Iron Workers Union. That's why it's important that our workforce of over 130,000 iron workers continues to be the safest and best trained in the field. With 154 training centers, we invest over $90 million annually in safety and training. We're growing the next generation of union iron workers. There are so many reasons to put your trust in our iron workers and their employers. Learn more about us at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. 
America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up. And you can receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. I want to continue growing America's workforce. And don't forget, everything is archived on awfpodcast.com. Let's go back to the nation's capital. And joining us today on our live line is Reed Mackey. Reed is with the Child Labor Coalition, which is a, a branch of the National Consumers League. Stopchildlabor.org. You heard me talk on this show for months now about the upsurge of child labor violations and a number of states that have pretty much allowed this to happen. Where are we on states? Is it like between 10 and 14 states that have changed the uh, the laws with regard to how uh, how young a child can work in their workplace? Is that where, where are we right now? Yeah, so between 10 and 14 states have introduced legislation in the last two years to to weaken protections. But um, um, so far, uh, I would say four of them have have succeeded in enacting weaker protections, and that's really unfortunate. You know, Iowa was a case um, uh, where that happened. It was a pretty nasty bill that was introduced, had 23 provisions in it, and and I think 22 of them are were quite bad. Um, the final bill there that was enacted was um, was weakened significantly thanks to the AFL-CIO Iowa and some other groups that worked on that diligently. But um, there's still some really bad things in it, allowing you know allowing kids to work in industrial laundries. You know, kids kids were only 14 and 15, allowing kids to work in like assembly lines with a state waiver. Um, just yeah, some really really stupid stuff like allowing kids to work in um, in fireworks manufacturing. Uh, we don't even think there are any fireworks plants in in Iowa, but there you know that came through in the bill and um, just some some you know really. Um, uh, careless, careless. Uh, I would say it was a p- careless piece of legislation that would enda- that will endanger a lot of teen workers. It's interesting you mentioned uh, no fireworks plants, but they could work in them. But now that probably sends a message to the makers of fireworks that they can set up shop in the state of Iowa because they got kids that can work in those fireworks factories. It's crazy what's going on. What about uh, Congress on this issue? I know the Biden administration has, well, their Department of Labor has uh, has been monitoring this. They've been kind of vocal on it. They could be more vocal. But what about Congress? Well, what can Congress do on this, Reed? Well, I think, you know, in general, we've been fairly happy with the response in Congress. Um, there was a recognition when the, when the DOL meatpacking findings came out that, that fines are too low. You, you mentioned that in the first segment. Fines are, are, are too low. So the maximum fine that... that um, that DOL can issue now is $15,000 per child labor violation. So in the case of that PSSI company I was telling you about that, that hired all the, uh, the kids to clean, um, that total fine for them was like $1.5 million. And this is a company that makes close to $500 million in revenues a year. So so $1.5 million fine is practically nothing, right? Right. So, um, so several members of Congress have introduced legislation, um, Representative um, Kildee in Michigan, Schulten in Michigan, um, Senator Schatz in, in uh, Hawaii, and uh, Representative Bobby Scott. They've, they've introduced a number of bills that would increase child labor fines by like a factor of 10. And we think that's necessary to, you know, to really 
to make these companies wake up and kind of recognize that you know that they that this could be painful, um, the fines could be painful. So, um, Reed, I noticed it, in your bio that uh, you worked with the uh, Farm Worker Opportunity Programs, the Association of Farm Worker Opportunity Programs, where uh, the goal was to end legal loopholes in U.S. child labor law that permits child agricultural laborers to work longer hours. Um, we talked about this briefly in the first segment. Maybe you can give us uh, a little more insight of what's going on on, on a lot of these farms. or family farms, but there's many corporate farms here. Um, are we seeing some uh, really horrible things? I, I know there's been accidents. I mean, when a, when, a, when a kid is operating some farm machinery, that could get very, very dangerous, sometimes tragic. Where's the uh, Child Labor Coalition on this issue right now? Yeah, this has been our domestic priority for a, a long time. You know, before before all this factory stuff started popping up in the, in the last year, we've been very focused on protecting child farm workers. The law is crazy. Um, a, t- a 12-year-old in the U.S. can work on a farm uh, unlimited hours as long as they're not missing school. So in the summer, on, you know, um, and a lot of migrant kids do this. They work 70, 80, sometimes 90-hour weeks. They um, you know, they work 12-hour days, and it's, you know, the, the conditions can be grueling. It can be 100 degrees out there. And, um, you know, and it's too much. It's too much for a 12-year-old to be doing that kind of work. And, you, you know, other kids, you know, you know my air-conditioned office here, I, I can't hire a 12-year-old. You know, I, I'd, <laughs> I'd get in trouble if I hired anyone under 16, I think. Um, so it doesn't make sense to let kids work long hours in agriculture, where you know, which has an elevated fatality and injury rate, and it's the you know it's the one area that kids are allowed to work in large numbers at younger ages. So it's the you know it should be an area that kids have received enhanced protections, but they don't. So we we need to fix that. Yeah, let's get back to the states here. Uh, a number of states have have lowered the age. Do you think it's slowed down right now because of all the publicity on child labor and child labor violations? I'm just wondering. I'm sure you've been monitoring this situation, haven't you? Yeah, we've been trying to. You know, it's it's hard it's hard for us as a national organization that works on policy here in D.C. to to you know to really closely monitor 50 states, but we try. And one thing we did notice is that there were a couple of states that had uh, child labor bills introduced and they were quickly withdrawn. And we do think that's because, you know, like some some of these groups that are approaching legislators and handing them these bills and, you know, they it may sound initially like there might be a problem. You know, they talk about worker shortages and stuff. But, um, you know, I think that some of the legislators are, are, are then doing their due diligence and just Googling, you know, what's going on in the country. And they see a lot of kids at risk and in danger all over the country, and they and they don't want to contribute to that. So I do think, I do think that might be explained why a lot of these bills in the states have have not moved. You know, they're they're stuck in one chamber or another, and they're you know and they're not really moving to to, um, to being signed. At least we hope not. You mentioned earlier about the uh, Foundation for Government Accountability. That's the uh, the think tank based in Florida. 
And uh, they've been helping lawmakers in various states, Arkansas and Missouri, for one, to draft these bills rolling back child labor protections. Have you have you reached out to them and said, hey, okay, (laughs) stop this stuff going on here. This is not right. I don't know if that's part of your protocol at the Child Labor Coalition, but, you know, it's got to start somewhere. And obviously there's a lot of money. I'm sure they're employed by some of these big firms that want to get. The, you know, labor at the lowest cost possible. I'm wondering, is there any, uh, has there been any contact with your with your group in that think tank? Um, that's an interesting idea. We haven't tried calling them and talking to them. Um, you know, we figured that, that there's a lot of uh, money and power behind what they're trying to do and that that's why they're trying to do it. But, uh, you know, it couldn't hurt. It couldn't hurt to have a conversation with them and make sure they understand that, you know, kids kids can are likely to die. You know, they're likely to lose arms and and um, get seriously hurt if, if if laws are enacted. So, and this is something you would think would happen in a third world country, and it probably is happening. Now, your group just covers the United States, or do you uh, do you consult other countries on what's happening in their respective uh, work sites? No, we do, we do try to work on international child labor issues. Uh, we've been pretty active in the cocoa sector in West Africa. You know, where kids work in um, almost um, almost slave-like conditions, you know, just working really, really long hours, often not paid, using machetes and being subjected to a lot of pesticides. Um, you know, around around the world, there are 160 million children, about, about one in every 10 kid is in child labor. So, um, you know, we're doing our best to, to promote efforts to, to um, get that number as low as possible. Well, the good news is we're talking about this, and it's it's important that Americans are aware of what's going on. I've been following this issue for months, almost the past year altogether, and uh, I go through a lot of publications. The Nation magazine did a really good article on this not too long ago. Child labor in America is back, and it's as chilling as ever. It should be a reminder of how deeply retrogressive capitalism has once again become both here at home and elsewhere across the planet. So we got to stay on this issue. Do you have one more question here? And thanks for joining us today. You are a nonprofit organization, I take it. Can I safely say that? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Okay, okay. Do you have enough funding <laughs> to do your work to get the message out on what's going on in, in the United States and around the world right now? Oh, that's a big challenge. Yeah, we would love to add a, a whole team of people to work on this. Uh, you know, we, we are able to leverage the resources of 35 organizations, but, you know, a lot of those groups are, um, you know, their main mission isn't child labor, it's something else. So, um, you know, they're only able to contribute, you know, uh, to a certain extent. So, yeah, we would love to hire, um, you know, a few people to work on this full time uh, with me and and do, you know, a lot more, monitor those state laws more closely. A lot, you know, there's a lot, a lot we could be doing that we don't have the capacity to do now. Well, Reed, I just want to let you know you have a voice here on America's Workforce. It's important because this is a show about workers. It's a show that wants to highlight these cases of exploitation so something could be done about them and some of these companies be fined and not just a couple thousand dollars here. Reed Mackey, who is Director of Child Labor Advocacy on behalf of the Child Labor Coalition, which is part of the National Consumer League. Again, that website, pretty simple and straightforward. Stop Child Labor. Dot O-R-G, stopchildlabor.org. 
Brother, you keep in touch with us here on America's Workforce, okay? Thank you very much. I really enjoy talking to you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Lynn Gabriel, spokesperson for the Lakeland Faculty Association. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as healthcare and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Lyuna. Find out what it takes for Lyuna to keep America running at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland at 216-881-1802. Call Music Talent of Cleveland as your dependable source for professional musicians in Northeast Ohio. Union musicians add harmony to weddings, elegance to parties, and uplifting music for all events. Music Talent of Cleveland contracts solo and ensemble musicians as well as bands and orchestras for single engagements. So hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland today. 216-881-1802. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be a WF Union podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, always connecting people with employment. You can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go to line number two. Welcome to the show, Lynn Gabriel. Lynn is a spokesperson for the Lakeland Faculty Association. They are affiliated with the Ohio Educational Association and the NEA as well. She's a professor of psychology at Lakeland Community College, and she was president when they did some negotiating a couple years ago. And right now they're doing more of that negotiating, and she's going to talk about all that and more. Lynn, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. So let's talk a little bit about your background. I mentioned professor of psychology. That's pretty interesting. One of my daughters got involved in that field, and she uh, got into some crisis counseling at a nonprofit. 
And I'll tell you, I picked up one of her college textbooks. I don't know how she got through it because it just baffled me. So <laughs> I have to salute. It is definitely, yeah, definitely a lot of a lot of reading, but also very fun. Uh, I think it's one of those fields where you can use it in pretty much any career that you want to get into. So I enjoy teaching it. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very deep, very deep. And you specialize in lifespan development. And this year, by the way, this fall marks your twentieth year at Lakeland with some experience. Twentieth year at Lakeland, I know. I, yes, I can't believe it's been that long, but it's been it's been a great ride. I um, I definitely enjoy teaching. I love being with the students in the classroom, and um, even in the online environment, of course, that we all had to adapt to. But uh, it's really one of my favorite things to do. Love teaching it, it, the lifespan development course. If you don't mind, Lynn, can, can you talk briefly about that time period with uh, with the pandemic? That had to be very challenging. It's probably good you had that psychology degree to back you up during that time. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a challenge. But um, uh, luckily, I had done a lot of um, online and hybrid classes prior to that. And so I was familiar with um, the online environment. But it definitely took some juggling and some... Um, you know, just really trying to think about how to do things differently and, um, you know, just really be there to connect with the students and for the students as they were also struggling to try to figure out this new world. Um, but, you know, we made it, we made it work. Um, that was a time when we actually worked very closely with uh, the administration to make sure that our students weren't going to be left behind and we were going to be able to do everything we needed to do for them. Um, and, and I think it was a great example of uh, collaborative work at that point. So we're hoping to do more of that this year as well. And how are we now? Are we through that? Is there still some virtual learning going on at Lakeland? Uh, yes, we definitely do have some. We had a lot of online and hybrid classes prior to the pandemic anyway, um, and it seems to be a format that a lot of students um, definitely appreciate. So anywhere from uh, older students, adult learners who are trying to go back to school to earn some more credentials or maybe switch job fields um, that are working full-time, so the online and hybrid classes work well with their busy schedules. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we also have a lot of CCP students, uh, which is College Credit Plus, who are the high school students taking college classes to earn high school credit at the same time they're earning college credit. And so their schedules are also um, very jam-packed with sports and extracurriculars. So again, those uh, online and hybrid classes work well for them as well. Um, So we're definitely trying to accommodate who our learners are and make sure that we have the formats that work best for their schedules as well. All right, let's get into uh, your union activity. As I noted, you were president of the uh, Lakeland Faculty Association. Well, that was during the pandemic, and there was a previous contract. It was. Yeah, yeah. That. Yeah. That had so a, it was. It was a. It was a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet it was. How How long have you been involved? When did you get involved in the union? Prior to that, though. Um, I got involved. I would say somewhere around 2017 or so. So I've been. Um, I, I, so I've always been a member of our union since I started at Lakeland. Um, and then I started becoming more involved with our leadership probably around 2016, 2017. Um, I was uh, vice president for a year, a um, couple of years actually, and then became president for a couple of years. Um, and then I um, switched over to being secretary for a bit and now I'm the spokesperson. So um, definitely been involved for all of that time. And it's been a great experience. 
Okay, so you, you got some talks going on now, but let's go back to three years ago. Can you uh, go back to that time and talk about how that how difficult it was? I mean, there, it's never a straight line. You know that. But maybe uh, you can give right. us a little glimpse of what went on and how that's going to bode for the current negotiations going on right now. Yes. So it was definitely challenging. Um, instead of coming to the table in person, our team was meeting virtually um, and talks were um, I mean, it took it took a while. Um, we typically try to make sure that we can secure a contract for our members prior to the start of the semester. Um, no one really ever likes to strike. Um, however, it is something that's definitely always a possibility. And so uh, talks were not going um, as well as we were hoping by the start of the semester, but instead of taking that break from our students, um, we decided to bargain in good faith, and so we did actually start our uh, fall semester still in negotiations, which isn't something that we've typically done in the past, um, and actually did not secure a contract until um, the middle of fall semester at that point, and so um, it was definitely different. We um, had not previously done that before um, and we don't know how talks are going this time as well um, we're hoping to have a contract by the start of fall semester but we're a week away from that so we'll see how things go at that point lynn are you at liberty to get in some of the issues right now you are a spokesperson for the association you're not you're not in that presidential role right now but can you get into that to uh, to kind of give us a, a little glimpse into what's going on right now sure no problem um, i think that our collective bargaining uh, really focuses around making sure that um, we're providing our students with the learning conditions that are going to work best for them. And so what we really want to make sure of is that we are doing the things that we can to really help our students' educational success. So, for example, we're really advocating for things like small classroom sizes. We want to make sure that we're able to provide our students with the individualized attention that they might need to help them succeed, um, you know, not only in the education uh, background that they're pursuing, but also in their career fields that they eventually want to get into. Um, we want to make sure that we are providing them with a safe campus. So, for example, in our previous contract, um, the Lakeland Faculty Association bargained for a safety committee to make sure that we could have a safe learning environment on campus. Um, however, you know, that safety committee was limited to the duration of our previous contract. So that is something that we are hoping to have continue with these uh, current talks that we're in. Um, so those are just a couple of the things that we are um, fighting for, you know, along with all the typical things, job security, academic freedom, um, that sort of thing as well. Now, you mentioned that uh, classes are supposed to start, what is it, in a week here? Now, what happens? Yes. What, <laughs> what happens? Is there a deadline imposed on any of this right now? We do not have a hard and fast deadline at this point. As long as talks are continuing, um, I think our negotiations team, you know, I have complete faith in them that they are going to do what is best for not only our faculty, but also our students as well. Um, and so we have about a week to go. Our classes actually, because of the way the weekend schedule works, start on Saturday of this week. Um, and so 
We have several days. We are hoping to make some progress in that time. We have requested a federal mediator at this point, um, and I can talk about more, uh, you know, of that if you'd like it at some point. But um, we're hoping to have talks continue and go in the right direction so that we can secure our contract and then be able to focus on our students completely without having to worry about all of the talks in the background. Well, let me pick up on that. You know, when you bring in a federal mediator, it, it kind of gives the impression that uh, both sides are kind of stuck. Uh, maybe you can answer that. I mean, have, has this been used? Has a mediator been used in the past, Lynn? So we have actually um, in the past used federal mediators. Um, we've requested one this time uh, because we really – we want the college's team to come to the bargaining table now. We don't want to have to be thinking about contract things and student learning conditions and worrying about our students at the same time we're going through negotiations. So we really want them to come to the table now and truly work with us to protect and really improve student learning conditions at the college. Um, you know, sometimes the college in the past, I can speak to previous negotiations, um, but in the past, they've kind of withholded meaningful movement really up until the night before fall semester has started. So, you know, there's kind of this artificial deadline and pressure to accept terms that might not be in our own or our students' own best interest. So that was one of the reasons we felt it was necessary to request a federal mediator at this point, because we really want to have that movement happen, um, you know, again, so that we can focus on our students and not have to worry about this stuff in the background. Yeah, exactly. That's what you want here. Well, one more question here. Less than a minute left to go here, Lynn. Um, how, how do you feel moving forward and as far as solidarity among your uh, among your teachers over there at Lakeland Faculty Association? What's your answer to that? Honestly, I think that we are more united uh, than I can remember in our uh, recent past. Um, I think that we are all working together very well. We trust our negotiations team. We have some fabulous members who are on that team, um, and we really trust that they are going to the table to, to get things done. We actually um, hosted a clap-in for them last week um, as they were entering into the building to meet with our administration, and we had... I would say really probably three quarters of our membership show up for that to clap them in in a united way to show them that we are behind them um, and support them. So I would say we are more united than ever. Good to hear, Lynn. Lynn Gabriel, spokesperson for the Lakeland Faculty Association. We're not at the 11th hour yet, but we're, we're closing in. And the website you want to go to is lfa.ohea.us. They're affiliated with the OEA and the NEA. Some powerful uh, unions there behind you. Lynn, you take care. Good luck. Stay in touch with us, okay? Thank you very much. You have a good day. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, the steelworkers involved in health care and ironworkers local 17 in Cleveland, Ohio. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.